The Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com presents Shakespeare Talks. Shakespeare Talks. I'm sitting here today with Stephen Sky Bell, who's a noted Shakespearean actor and teacher, mm-hmm. uh, with whom, uh, with Shakespeare Society, have had the pleasure of working. Uh, he has taught classes for us, verse classes, and he has most recently done a workshop of Richard II with us. And before that, we did an evening. Um, where you did some Hamlet for us. Do you remember? You read you read some of the bad quarto for us. I did. I don't quite remember. But to, be or not, <laughs> to be or not to be, I, there's the point. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but today, mm. uh, we're here to talk about you. All right. And your relationship to Shakespeare and his language in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to start off at the beginning. Yeah. That is, some of your earliest Shakespearean memories. Sure. Uh, is a, one of my favorite questions for people. Do you have some strong early ones? I do. Um, you know, I grew up in a small Texas town, Lubbock, Texas, and I don't know exactly how it happened. I think I do think it was the Folger editions in the bookstores had interesting covers, and it caught my eye when I was in sixth grade. And uh, I think the first Shakespeare play I read was the Scottish play. And I don't know exactly how much I truly understood, but I, I was completely intrigued. And, uh, and uh, I was in a children's theater program at the time, so definitely plays were a part of my um, activities. But I did, then I read Romeo and Juliet, and I, just, and I saw the film, which I don't know when that came out, but uh, you know, all of that was very impressive to me, so much so that I tried to get my sixth grade class on board, and we were going to do a production of Romeo and Juliet. I would be, of course, playing Romeo. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that, and I'm fond of remembering that we didn't even know how to pronounce the character's name, so true to West Texas, he was Tybalt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, Tybalt's soul was waiting a little bit above our heads, either thou or he must join him. So that was, you know, that was really my first experience of Shakespeare. And I, we, did, we did the whole play as far as I can remember. Wow. And uh, I was hooked right then and there. And, and I know um, in teaching Shakespeare, I know that people ha- feel like it sometimes can be very inaccessible. But I don't know for whatever reason there was... It was there's so much of it that spoke to me at that time that I really um, felt uh, hooked on it. Right from that time forward. And uh, where did you go to college? Well, I went to Yale College, uh-huh. and um, and then I went to the Yale School of Drama. Right. And before that, I was I went to the Interlochen Arts Academy oh, summer wow. camp, which which also did Shakespeare. They had a Shakespeare program as well as a musical theater program. And uh, I was a drama major, so it was, you know, I was playing Claudius at 16 and Malvolio at 17. <laughs> and um, they were, you know, they, they were great teachers there. James Harvey uh, headed the Shakespeare division for years and years and years. He's recently passed away. But a lot of um, what he had to pass on about Shakespeare, I, I certainly, it still seems valid and true to me. Well, I'm going to say, what do you think makes, I know that you've done a lot of your own teaching, mm-hmm. what do you think makes a good Shakespeare teacher? I mean, 
You think attention to the verse, attention to character. Well, I um I I'm personally a verse maven and I've 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 taught classes where people tell me they've had a Shakespeare teacher who hasn't even given any time to the verse. Mm. And uh, you know, which is just sort of just feel it, you know, just feel it. And that to me is sort of anathema because I I think um, and it's not to say James Harvey spent a lot of time on the verse back then when I was in junior high school and high school, but I feel like to really be an accomplished actor in Shakespeare, you want to face the verse head on and not not just wing it and not just say, I kind of get it. You, It's really the horse that you're going to ride and that is going to take you to places you can't even imagine emotionally as well as intellectually and as well as just trying to decipher what you're saying on the page. So I'm, I'm a big proponent that um, a Shakespeare class is going to want to um, concentrate on verse. And at the Yale School of Drama, who who is the main voice and text person? Well, there? we had several. Um, Deb Hecht was the was the speech lady um, for the first year, and then she was taken. She left to go down to to Chapel Hill, and Barbara Somerville took over the speech. But that, which you might think it's just accents, but it's she actually in the second year, the entire second year of our training is devoted to verse work and. Per, predominantly Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, which, again, is that's to me, that's the benefit of a, of a conservatory training is that you immerse yourself. It was Shakespeare every day. You know, we had Shakespeare three hours a day, three days a week, um, in addition to performing in, in verse plays and all that. So Barbara Somerville was the speech uh, teacher. Um, Zoe Alexander and Virginia Ness took the voice um class, which was definitely Linklater-based um, and very important in terms of what I understand to be sort of the uncovering the emotional reality and the emotional rawness that is in Shakespeare mm-hmm. and the spontaneity and the breath that is in under all that language that can start to seem very plodding. And then David Chambers was um, the headed the, the acting class, which was the Shakespeare class. Um, those were the that was the sort of triumvirate of people, right? And then at some point you went out over to England, right, uh, to help inaugurate the creation of the Globe. Yeah, yeah. how did that come about? Well, I had to audition, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I had worked with Mark Rylance at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge. They had brought his production of Hamlet over. Um, to the ART. Directed by Ron Daniels. Ron Daniels, yes. Um, and uh, we, we then were going to do Hamlet and the Seagull in Rep at the ART. And so I met Mark then. I was his Horatio to his Hamlet. And um, and then we did we actually did As You Like It in the city together at Theater for a New Audience that he directed and was in. And But he, he claims that when it came about to audition for The Globe, that he let Richard Olivier, who was Laurence Olivier's son, who was going to be directing Henry V, mm. which was the inaugural production of The Globe, that he, he left it to him to not say, here's someone that I know and you might want to use him. So I, I do think I legitimately got through an got audition uh, process. But right. they felt, because Sam Wanamaker had been the spearhead behind the whole resurrection of Shakespeare's Globe in London, the, you know, the, 
the Brits in general were not that interested in trying to find out where it stood. And it was Sam Wanamaker who really was um, determined to rebuild it. So right. they felt they wanted to have an American presence in the inaugural company. And did you learn anything in particular? What was the experience like uh, performing outdoors in an yeah. environment it like that? It was mind-blowing. It really, um, I left the Globe saying I could never do Shakespeare again in a dark, darkened theater um, without the sky above me. That's how that's how revelatory it felt when when you're doing it. Of course, I have eaten those words and gone back to doing Shakespeare in the dark. But <laughs> um, w one example is that just by doing it at the Globe, for whatever reason, I did become aware that there are so many references in Shakespeare to the weather, and you're more often than not going to get a laugh on any kind of reference to weather. Um, the Constable of France, which is one of the parts I was playing in Henry V, talks about how terrible the English weather is. So if it was raining, if it were raining on that day, it got a very strong response. And if it were a beautiful sunny day, that it would also got a, an incredible response. Mm -hmm. You realize, you, you then re realize that Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet, when he makes reference to the clouds, that he he would have, in doing that, really drawn attention to if it were performed at the Globe, outside the Globe, to that relationship. Um, and I think it's a vital relationship. I think that it's a, a relationship that Shakespeare was aware of, especially when he was writing at the Globe, maybe not for plays that he was writing for the Temple Inn or whatever, or mm -hmm. the, the court, that, that his plays were part of nature, and nature also plays a part in his plays. Right. So you, don't, you can't shut it out. You have to incorporate it. That was one big thing. Right. And the vocal work, I mean, that must have been something else. I mean, what does it what does it seat or stand? Or? Um, I'm, I don't it's know. So, it's somewhere over 2,000, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a lot of people, people, but it doesn't necessarily feel vast. The Del Obviously, the Delacorte in, in Central Park feels much vaster in terms of the area that you have to They're try and reach. They're farther away. People are farther away. Um, but we did, I mean, we did have voice class. I mean, that was a, a wonderful thing to be an American, to go over there and experience the sort of the company milieu of um, even though you're rehearsing and even though you're performing, there still was the opportunity to have like a warm-up class every day. And so they, they, you know, had people come in to truly to show us how we can try and make our voices you know, without shouting, without screaming, but to be heard in that space. Right. I remember in Henry V, Mark Rylance playing Henry had such moments of stillness and quiet that you, he, you, he didn't have to shout at all, and he barely had to project, and you felt that everyone was able to uh, hear what he was saying. That's remarkable. Yeah. Another, I just want to say, another revelation about the um, playing at the Globe was the whole relationship with the audience and the groundlings and the the dissolution of the fourth wall. You know, in in modern scene study class, it's all about the notion of this fourth wall, whereas Shakespeare is dealing in a much more um, mutable situation whereas I can be in a scene and in a situation and in a drama and there's nothing that says I can't look out and comment on it to the audience right. and um, so that you know that the clowns do it they have a side so it's funny and then Hamlet also does it so that it can be done for humor as well as for connection just right. connection that vital connection to the audience and we had to learn as players at the Globe how not to invite 
um, response because uh, the audience that first season was like um, a kid in a candy store in terms of that relationship and they wanted so much to run the show and to right. take it along and we had to really learn how it is to in engage without inviting them to to take us that was and that was amazing mm -hmm. um, and since returning yes You've done a lot of Shakespeare, but I know that you've begun to teach. Yes. Or you have been teaching for some time. Yes. Um, and is there, is there an approach? Is there a sort of center or a key to your approach to the to the work? Uh, you said that you're a, 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 verse, of, a verse maven. Yeah. Yes. Start there. Start there. Cannot go beyond that until I feel like until my students really have the, the 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 idea of what the verse is because the, the thing the thing that I try and relate to them is that it's not an it's not an a an interesting intellectual sidebar to acting Shakespeare it's the foundation of it and that just like Pinter has a pause Shakespeare's pauses are indicated in the verse his stage action can be indicated in the verse so that as an actor I'm going to be culling that for all the information that I can get and if I don't have an understanding of how the verse operates then I'm going to be missing out on all this opportunity to get Shakespeare's input because so often you can be stymied you're playing Hamlet and you're like oh, okay how how do I even begin to create my version of this iconic role? Uh, rather than sort of scratch your head and think, well, what if I start this scene doing it this way? I think it's much it's it's more exciting, and and a lot of people can't even do it. Is that just look into the verse, and that will be your stepping off point. And in that respect, you're in you're in conversation with the playwright, right. and that's exciting. You say that you begin often with Henry the Sixth, right? With my classes, I uh, have to take that back because what I, what I always do begin with is the prologue from Romeo and Juliet because uh -huh. everybody knows Romeo and Juliet. There's no, like, I can't follow this. I can't, I don't know what's going on. Um, so we start with Romeo and Juliet, just sort of jump into the world of Shakespeare. And is, th is that because the prologue is highly regular verse or is it? Well, I start with the prologue because uh, it's not, it's, it's pre "Quote unquote pre-acting," mm -hmm. you know. I don't want to start them off with something that's high drama, and it's very naked. It's just someone standing up in front of a group of people saying, "This is the story you're about to see." It's not highly irregular. It has some irregularity. Uh, Doth with their death bury their parents' strife. That bury is a trochee, which is um, really an interesting notion that that word should get a sort of special emphasis from Shakespeare. Um, but in, on the whole, it's not that irregular. Can I ask you to read it? Of course. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, 
is now the two hours traffic of our stage, the which, if you with patient ear attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Now, in that speech, yeah. beautifully read by mm, you, mm. Um, they speak of two a two-hour passage right. of our stage. Yeah. Is that what it is? Two hours traffic. Two hours traffic. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> this would seem to indicate a certain swiftness of right. speaking. Yes. Is that something that you... Uh, well, that was a when we opened the Globe in '97. That was a big question that everybody had, which was two hours, two hours. Are these shows going to be two hours? Is the, is there a difference? And um, I mean, I don't, I don't believe, I don't. <laughs> you ever came in under two hours, right? But having said that, there, uh, I will say that Shakespeare tells you where he wants pauses, mm -hmm. and if he doesn't tell you then you're better serving the text and probably serving yourself as an actor to keep going. In some ways, it's a little like there is an aspect to it which is like a radio play, which is anything that is said is vital. Anything that's not said, if it, if it needs to be known, it's said. If it, it, so you don't have much time for um, off-the-text events. You want it to be on text unless Shakespeare has given you and he ha and he does. He gives you um, dramatic pauses. Another one that I'm fond of saying is that uh, she Juliet says in Romeo and Juliet, "I'll set this here. This shall determine that." Come, vile, da dum, da dum, da dum, da dum. What if this potion do not work at all? So Shakespeare has given you a, a partial line. A partial line. Come, vile, and then the rest of the line. There's no nothing to make the iambic pentameter so as the actor I would know that Shakespeare's saying fill that moment for all it's worth to take that vial of poison and is she gonna drink it is she not gonna drink it and then she says what if it doesn't work and so those are filled with event those silences and Shakespeare tells us if he doesn't tell us I say keep moving very good now you've played I want to talk about a couple of roles that you've played sure Richard II yes. is one of your favorites, I know. It is, yes. Uh, Why is that? Well, uh, again, I had the opportunity to do that just after The Globe. And um, Ron Daniels, who we spoke of earlier, had directed that. We were doing that at Theatre for a New Audience um, in rep Richard II and Richard III, which right. are bookends to that history. The reason I love, I mean, I love the part because it's a beautiful, beautiful role. It's beautifully written, but it's a role that uh, resonates with me. I, and I can't, I can't necessarily say why I don't, you know, it's an unconscious um, resonance that I ju it just, it just spoke to me. I had a great time working on it. And, uh, um, and the thing, the thing I tell my students time and again is that if you, if you lay into the work of the verse and really understand it, then that ultimately becomes a springboard into something that you may not even imagine emotionally. And so that uh, when we did Henry V at the Globe, we, we one of the director's conceits was that everybody drummed, and we spent hours drumming and drumming. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea of drumming is that it whips people up into emotional states. Right. And similarly, the iambic pentameter works on a level that way, so that when you are emoting and acting on that beat and you know where the beat is, it can then help you become airborne, um, which... Yeah. 
happens. And do you have a, a, a taste or a sensibility about the audience's ability to hear the verse? That is, some people really want the audience to be able to hear the verse. Yeah. Um, my feeling more that we should feel the verse yeah. as a sort of pulse that yeah. exists underneath or within the language, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily observing line endings. And Absolutely. I tell my students time and again, if somebody leaves a performance of theirs and they say, well, weren't those great trochies, weren't those great line endings, feminine endings, you've missed the boat. Mm-hmm. And ideally, you don't want to draw attention to the verse at all. The verse is a tool to uncover the drama, the event of it. And um, I also believe and tell my students that Shakespeare was dealing with a form that he inherited. It was the way plays were done. They had to be done in verse. They had prose aspects, but they had to be done in verse. That just was the convention. But in writing verse, he was just writing people talking. And I, and I always tell them, go back to the meat and potatoes of it, because as highfalutin as it can sound and as, as heavy an imagery as it is, it's always a person trying to just say something and to ultimately get something. Did you get back to Richard II? Yeah. Um, that is a, a play that's entirely, I believe, yes. entirely in verse. It's completely in verse. And parts of it are highly poetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the challenge of making it, I won't say conversational, but yeah. uh, human yeah. can be a particular challenge in a play like that. Right, right. It does seem to me, we spent two weeks working on it where you were playing Bolingbroke and mm-hmm. Stephen Spinella was playing Richard II. Uh, it seemed to me that that part is one whose voice evolves during the course of the play. Definitely. That is from someone who can use very highly artificial language Mm -hmm. as an instrument of power Mm -hmm. uh, to someone who ends up discovering something true and very simple about himself. And it feels like the language sort of shifts from this register of high formality to one of intimacy. Right. I agree with you. And again, you have to ask, one does want to ask, what was Shakespeare up to? He, 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 I don't think he was saying, let me see if I can write a play completely in verse. He chose that probably in relation to the story he wanted to tell. And I think it's not impossible that it's very much related to what you just said, which is that, that high rhetorical, the high pageant that the play begins with, we he for whatever reason wanted to maintain that verse structure and and relentlessly uncover that that artifice to reveal humanity and and not not say i have to devolve to prose to to uncover that right well i want to go to one of those passages of high humanity yes uh it is um one of the more famous speeches in the in the play okay. it is the only soliloquy that Richard II has in the play. That is, when he's alone on stage, speaking directly to the audience. Right. He's in prison. He's in prison. And um, again, from the moment I worked on this with Ron 10 years ago, um, <laughs> it definitely, you know, from the high pageant, this this prison, from the prison, the prison scene, which is his final scene, feels more like um, Gogol, you know, or, or Dostoevsky, that he has no, he has very minimal relationship with the world that he used to rule. And in some ways, I think that's caused a bit of a 
breakdown, a mental breakdown, a refinement of thought, but a persistence of thought. Can we hear it? Sure. I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for, because the world is populous, and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. My brain, I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father. And these two beget a generation of still-breeding thoughts. And these same thoughts people this little world in humors like the people of this world, for no thought is contented. The better sort, as thoughts of things divine, are intermixed with scruples and do set the word itself against the word. As thus, come, little ones. And then again, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread a small, a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. Thoughts tending to content flatter themselves that they are not the first of fortune's slaves, nor shall not be the last. Like silly beggars who, sitting in the stocks, refuge their shame that many have and others must sit there. And in this thought they find a kind of ease, bearing their own misfortunes on the back of such as have before endured the like. Thoughts tending to ambition, they do plot unlikely wonders how these vain, weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls, and for they cannot die in their own pride. Thus play I in one person, many people, and none contented. Sometimes am I king, then treasons make me wish myself a beggar, and so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then am I kinged again, and by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke, and straight am nothing. But what e'er I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. Music do I hear? <laughs> Keep time. Oh, how sour sweet music is when time is broken, no proportion kept. So is it in the music of men's lives and here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string, but for the concord of my state, and time had not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me, for now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with sighs they jar their watches on unto mine eyes, the outward watch, whereto my finger, like a dial's point, is pointing still in cleansing them with, from tears. Now, sir, 
the sound that tells what hour it is, are clamorous groans which strike upon my heart, which is the bell. So sighs and tears and groans show minutes, times and hours, but my time runs posting on in Bolingbroke's proud joy while I stand here fooling his jack-of-the-clock. This music mads me. Let it sound no more. For though it have halt madmen to their wits in me, it seems it will make wise men mad. Yet blessing on his heart that gives it me. For tis a sign of love, and love to Richard is a strange brooch in this all-hating world. I noticed that a lot of that speech is monosyllabic. Yes. And there are many opinions about what monosyllables indicate for an mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the rule of thumb is that um, when you've come upon monosyllables, it's a red flag that something's going on. Um, what that is that's going on, again, it's, there's, there's no hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. There may, it may be that it's emotion. It may be import. Um, the, the thing, again, that I love about monosyllables is that if, if there is a verse, inherent verse, to dum to dum to dum to dum to dum if I start to speak with one word, one beat words, I'm not speaking there's no way to know where I am in terms of ta-tum, ta-tum, ta-tum. Hmm. Rainy, rainy, rainy. Any mo- polysyllable has a, ryth- has a rhythm in it. But if it's monosyllable, I am somehow going out of rhythm. You feel it's a freer rhythm. It, it, ha- it, it points no way. So it means that, I mean, uh, often it means uh, you can slow down. Slow down. Or if you, if you have, um, again, Hamlet right. has, I do not know why yet I live to say this things to do. Sith, I have cause and strength and means and will to do it. <laughs> right? So you, you feel it, that it become yeah it becomes looser rhythmically. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly have heard slow down and often that the that the character is actually trying is inside of a thought mm-hmm. or inside of a, trying to explore more closely what the thing is. Uh, the most famous one that I always think of is it is the cause, my soul. It is the cause, which seems to me mm. to be a sort of ruminative and investigating, investigating that moment. Right. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, it, it also forces you to slow down because, actually, in a ten-syllable monosyllabic line, there's ten words. Right. Whereas, yeah. right. when you have a polysyllabic word, you can have two words and yeah. that be an entire line. Right. Absolutely. Um, and now that you've raised Hamlet, yes. Uh, in some ways, there is a connection for me anyway, between Richard II and Hamlet, because there is a certain um, sense of the individual caught inside of a larger structure, a sort of royal structure. Um, On some level, a sort of plot structure Hamlet's inside of. You know, he's sort of, there's this thing to do, right? There's this revenge that I've got to do. And um, while I don't think that there's a delay, I think he has... He sees the structure and mm. sees something wrong with it or yeah. feels something wrong with it mm. uh, and has a, I mean, 
clearly Hamlet has a sense of uh, interior life that's remarkable in all sort of dramatic literature. Yeah. But I see some of that in Richard II, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with what you just said. Thinking about, and I did play Hamlet in 2000 at the California Shakespeare Festival, directed mm -hmm. by Karen Coonrod, which was outdoors without microphones. Um, and the, the thing is, is that um, uh, Richard II is, how can I say it? Um, I don't know how to, um, Kilimanjaro. And Hamlet is definitely Everest. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Is, yes. I mean, is Everest harder? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, because there are just some things in Hamlet. I mean, one is that you do get the feeling that Shakespeare kept, just was kept filling it so that the, the accepted production that we now have of Hamlet is, is like a marathon. It sort of defies um, the strength of an individual. What Hamlet is asked to do, I mean, and and that is to say, it isn't to say that Richard II doesn't have heights to climb, but for me personally, those were a little more um, accessible. Mm -hmm. There is great enigma in Hamlet, and uh, the nunnery scene, and I don't want to read it, so please don't ask me. <laughs> okay, but it's just my Ophelia is not very good. <laughs> it's just it's just almost an impossibility in terms of trying to crack the bottom line of what is going on. Right. Well, it's a, it's a part certainly that has probably the greatest number of sort of uh, vocal or verbal registers, right? I mean, there's, there is a sort of interior yeah. soliloquy. Yeah. There is a sort of explosive soliloquy. Yeah. There is the clown. I mean, he's very yeah. funny. Yeah. He speaks very quickly sometimes. He mm. uh, And then has that incredible, whatever motivates the nunnery scene, the emotion involved in playing that scene yeah. is tremendous. As well as the closet scene. Right. As well as the grave scene with Ophelia. Um, I mean, it, that's the high emotion is, is just the thing that was so challenging to try and calibrate, to figure it out. Because sometimes you, you look at a role and you want to see it as an arc. You want to know where the climax is of the role. Mm -hmm. And with Hamlet, it was it was death. I mean, thinking back on it, I, I can't tell you what the climax of the role is. Right. Yeah, he's what just is? sort of spewing and splattering along. Um, similarly, until... All, yeah, until well, similarly to Richard II, and I don't know, I think it's it's something that one could say, one wants to look at in Shakespeare in general, that water, a journey across water, often creates a transformation of character. Right. So Hamlet goes to England via water and blows up Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in their ship and comes back a different man. Right. Similarly, Richard II goes to Ireland and comes back different. And there's less splattering, as you said, splattering yes. along. Once he comes back, he seems to have some sort of resolution, firmness of purpose, yeah. uh, or resignation, is it? I don't it's know. It's hard to know. It is hard to know. He definitely comes back um, sounding uh, sounding like Jesus, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, uh, well, so speaking of which, uh, I know uh, one of your favorite passages uh, yeah. is the... Um, if it is not now, yeah. Speech. It's a scene between it's Hamlet Horatio. and Horatio, mm -hmm. and Hamlet, and it happens in the fifth act. Well, let's hear that. Let's hear that little speech from uh, Act Five of Hamlet. Okay. Not a whit. We defy augury. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. 
If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of what he leaves knows aught, what is to leave betimes? Let be. And that, that let be at the end of that speech is quite beautiful. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, you could say that the whole drama of Hamlet is a, a dance with the verb to be. Mm -hmm. And so that to be or not to be finally now has settled with let be. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you, you know, you can see that that definitely is a progression in this character. Right. Um, from that earlier struggle. And you felt, I mean, you said he's, he talks like Jesus. Yeah. You, you find that his post-water voyage uh, self is, well, that. I mean, let be, right? It has certain religious uh, overtones and certain right. sort of, um, is it, is it that, that, do you think that he's at peace in a way? Or is it that he's determined or you don't know? Well, um, <laughs> answer at this point, I would say he's at he's he seems to have found a perspective, and that pers uh, the perspective has given him a certain equipoise, mm -hmm. um, th certainly more of a balance than he had earlier in the play. Right, and yet he he still has this thing to do, and then ultimately he is going he is in the next scene going to finally kill his uncle. Right. And so he's a, he's able. To, it's not that he's a pacifist, and it's not that he's a love child, a flower child, <laughs> but that I mean, what he's saying here, I mean, and perhaps my reading belies that. I mean, you want because what he's saying is, you got to be ready. You have to be ready, whether it's now or then. It's going to happen. Be ready, mm -hmm. which isn't to say, give in. You know, go with the flow. Right. It's be ready for the fight when the fight happens. Right. And um, well, that's beautifully put. And I thought the I think the word equipoise is is particularly well chosen because of those balanced phrases that if it be not now, yeah, it, the right, entities yes. to come. Mm. That he has this sort of balanced phraseology through that speech. Yeah. And again, we spoke of it uh, in my conversation with Lila Robbins. Yeah. That is the the way that monosyllables after often at the end of very complicated passages, yes. the delivery of monosyllables, mm -hmm. it's, it's an incredible winner for Shakespeare. Yeah, I agree. It's the simple, the simple utterance which can just shoot after all that fireworks right. that kind of just sums it up. And similarly here, his let be. I find it very moving. Yes, very much so. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with the Shakespeare Society, and we hope to have you come back and teach for us I'd and love come to. do more I'd events with us and workshops. So, Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy. You've been listening to Shakespeare Talks, brought to you by the Shakespeare Society and PlayShakespeare.com. Beer Talks.